1: Hello, welcome to The Room, and I'm Michael Bloom. I'm Nathan C. Today we have a super exciting episode for you. We'll start off by talking about the 11th Democratic primary debate. And quite possibly the last. And quite possibly the most informative. (laughs) Uh, And then we'll talk about um, a little bit of like a final ditch effort for an argument for Bernie. And then we will talk about the coronavirus and the uh, current administration's response and how things are currently going in the words of
0: hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy don't panic oh
1: interesting i thought it was going to be goodbye and thanks for all the fish <laughs>
0: <laughs> honestly
1: that would be just as appropriate to say right now <laughs> goodbye <laughs> and thanks for all the toilet paper
0: <laughs> god so when when jess was uh uh was at the store earlier today it was completely empty That's like it looked like she said that it looked like zombie
1: land in there but the thing is like the game theory issue. Even if you're not a like someone who's stocking up on stuff, you have to get ahead of the people that are going to stock up on stuff. Yeah. And so you end up being in this weird position where like, if you need toilet paper at all, you have to go right now <laughs> <laughs> to get ahead of it. Yeah. Or eggs or milk. or it, People need their bread to soak in milk in order to... <laughs> stay healthy the you funny know, thing is I, I drink milk with almost everything i've never soaked bread
0: and milk i just don't mm, see that as
1: that's your milk toast <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though the bread aisles are empty the flour and yeast aisles plenty full <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> learn, learn to make bread while you're home
0: <laughs> all right uh, let's get started by talking about the debate there's definitely a lot
1: to talk about here Where to start? Seriously. Well, so, okay, so let's start by just giving a little bit of background. At this point, we've got only three people on the Democratic side uh, who are still in the race. Um, Bernie Sanders, obviously, uh, Joe Biden, of course, and Tulsi Gabbard, who is technically still in the race. And I think she has two delegates. I think this is like when you forget to pay a bill on time. And and then you move, and it just takes a while for their notices to catch up to you. That oh, by the way, you're still in the presidential it's primary. Like, oh crap, I haven't dropped oh out yet. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I thought I dropped out months ago.
0: And look, you know, no disrespect to Tulsi Gabbard, but she hasn't really got a chance at this point. I don't know why she's still in. Like no, no one's she, hey, paying. She's got
1: two delegates. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, look, I, I gave her praise early in the, earlier in the campaign because I liked the fact that she was bringing an anti-war message um, to the debate stage and forcing people to talk about it. I thought that her takedown of uh, Kamala Harris was epic and is probably when it ended up tanking her campaign. Um, but at this point, she's not getting attention. She's not drawing attention for an issue. Uh, I don't know what she's
1: doing. And therefore, we should not draw attention to her either. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> um, so, because of coronavirus concerns, there was no audience. Yeah. So, there were three moderators uh, from CNN. And, and the Univision. two candidates
0: were like six feet away from each other. And yeah. uh, I was watching the pre coverage on CNN, um, which, I mean, there's my first mistake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but. They spent like five minutes just talking about the distance of the podiums. And I'm like, this is why I don't watch CNN. The
1: first thing that one of the political correspondents said right afterwards was like how far away they were standing away from each other. Who cares? Who, yeah, I think they were six feet to be exact. Like, um, It's like, oh wait, maybe it was seven feet. To be fair, the camera framing, I don't know if you noticed this, was a little awkward because they yeah. were like, it was like the camera was slightly too close. They were like right at the edge of the frame with a bunch of white space in the middle. Yeah. But anyway, again, totally unimportant. Totally unimportant. Um, but we what just drew attention to it. <laughs> what was important, though, was that there was no audience, which was very quiet. Like, no one was booing. No one was... And I think it, it may have helped the candidates. Maybe this was also that there were just two of them and they knew that they were going to have time to speak and say the things they wanted to say, which which I thought led to, it seemed to me like a more calm, certainly in its like initial, maybe first half, maybe three quarters um, of the debate, more measured responses. There was less interrupting. I think a lot of things contributed to that. But overall, I liked this debate format. I thought it was really informative. I just liked this one the best.
0: Yeah, I honestly, I understand that um, people feed off audiences for energy. I mean, I, you know, you and I have both been performers. We know that, uh, when you have an audience, you are definitely more energetic and more excitable. Yeah. Um, but this isn't acting, this isn't entertainment. This is politics. This is uh policy. And I liked the fact that although it was a little bit lower energy, there was definitely clear focus on okay, let's yeah. break down these isu- these issues. Let's talk about these issues. I'm not trying to appease the audience. I'm not trying to um. I'm not trying to make this line because I know when I finish, I'm gonna get an applause. And if I don't get that applause, I'm going to sit there awkwardly. Yeah. Have a Jeb Bush moment. Please clap. <laughs> um, no, no, there was none of that. It was just yeah. like let's be clear with what I'm for, what I'm against and let's duke it out
1: yeah and i thought the moderators did a pretty good job getting out of the way like there were a lot of moments yeah. when biden and bernie were just going back and forth and yeah you say this i say this let's just talk about it and, yeah, and the moderators were just like let's
0: just let's just let them let's just let them duke it out for a bit and yeah. maybe we'll come in with a question in like another 10 minutes <laughs> yeah
1: so overall i think this worked really well i don't think this is necessarily scalable like if you had Three candidates on stage, maybe four would be too many for this kind of yeah, relaxed I agree. Um, thing. But anyway, and, the,
0: and they'd have to have them even further away from yeah, each other. that would
1: be an enormous stage. <laughs> 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 um, so overall, the debate covered a bunch of issues. It started off spending a lot of time covering coronavirus um, and we're, then moved on to some additional issues. Yeah,
0: we're, we're not going to get too much into that mm-hmm. because we're going to be talking a lot about coronavirus later in the podcast. Yeah. But I think one essential thing to discuss is Bernie Sanders used it as an opportunity to talk about the importance of Medicare for All um, as a potential solution to what is going on right now. And I think that that's a good point, and I think that's an important thing to bring up because... Um, You know, you can make the argument that, uh, well, of course, socialism makes sense to fight the coronavirus because it can affect everybody. So a lot of health issues. So why don't we apply that same logic Mm -hmm. to all of the various other things that can cause people to die or get sick or to get hurt? Um, and I don't think Biden made a very compelling case for what makes coronavirus different for, like, we should make sure that nobody goes bankrupt or nobody dies of coronavirus due to finances. But when it's not that, when it's something else, um, then it's OK to just let people die. Yeah. And yeah. Bernie or to, or to let people this, go bankrupt because uh, his plan does not get rid yeah. of premiums, co
1: and deductibles. Yeah, and he used it to make also larger points about economic inequality in general. He said specifically mm-hmm. that, you know, this is not a direct quote, but that the rich are going to be fine. Yeah. Um, it is the poor and vulnerable people that would be most hurt by this. And, you know, and and in public discourse, in policy discourse right now, and people aren't neglecting that. Like, it's very clear that plans are being put together both to address the virus, but also the potentially coming recession, um, certainly the economic shot to yeah. follow. And so, you know, he he used it as a wedge, and it was so clear that he was doing this. Every time it was back to the crisis in our economy on an everyday basis, not just from the coronavirus. So he used it as a wedge to, in order to, like, bring to light that, you know, Everybody's a socialist when the, the the stuff hits the fan. But why, to Nathan's point and to Bernie's point, do we not seek the same level of solutions? Because it's not just the same solutions, right? There are lots of ways to get to the end goal. But we really don't even seek to solve problems at the same level of effectiveness under normal times. Like, we just don't seem to care that thousands of people die from lack of health care. Yeah. And according to the Yale study, um,
0: that number is uh, 68,000, yeah. which that should be considered a crisis. I, I mean, half of all Americans, approximately half of all Americans have gone without health care specifically because they could not afford it. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it didn't result in them dying, but it definitely resulted them in them not getting the care that they needed at the moment. That's not okay. That should not exist. Let's To put it into perspective, there are people during this crisis that are going to get sick and are going to go to the hospital and they're going to pray that they have coronavirus because if they have coronavirus, they're going to get treated. That should not be our system.
1: Mm -hmm. It was interesting because Bernie was making this larger point about Medicare for all and Biden's response well was basically well how does universal health care work in italy and like all the projections indicate that we're following a very similar path to italy and it's not a matter of lack of availability compared to the united states on an everyday basis pandemics are unique situations yeah like italy is being uniquely hit uh, italy's in a place where the u.s. And potentially the Eurozone might be in a matter of eight to 10 days. So like to say that Italy's weakness in responding to the coronavirus is that it has a single payer system is a bad faith argument. And but it goes to play along with some more um, traditional arguments against single payer, which is like, oh, well, it doesn't it doesn't really work um because of one re- reason or another and like that's why we shouldn't have it like yeah they have it in those other countries but look at how bad their healthcare systems are so we don't want it here except they're all better than ours yeah and <laughs> and and it's like oh well like, great during a pandemic they might have some shortages big surprise like they have
0: they have higher life expectancies lower infant mortality rates we pay more and get less i mean yeah it's it, it's more complicated than that in a lot of ways like when you get into the nitty gritty but in simple terms, we pay more and we get less. It's a bad system. And Joe Biden is for preserving a lot of that system in, uh, in place. Now, to be clear, we've talked about this. A public option would be an improvement. It mm-hmm. would absolutely be an improvement. But it would not get rid of premiums. It would not get rid of deductibles. And it would not get rid of the private insurance companies hold on our economy. And to make matters worse... And this perfectly encapsulates why I do not buy the argument that Joe Biden is going to be the incrementalist that's going to eventually turn us into the progressive social democracy that Bernie Sanders has visioned for us. He recently said, he he, he was recently asked in an interview, if theoretically, Nancy Pelosi were able to pass Medicare for All in the House of Representatives. It went to the Senate and we, assuming Democrats have taken control of the Senate, it passes the Senate, gets put on Joe Biden's desk. So we've already overcome all the major political hurdles. It is solely his choice. Would he sign it into law? And he said that he'd veto it. You want to tell me he's an incrementalist? You want to tell me that he's going to, um, that he's actually going to work towards a single payer system? I mean, maybe he'll change his mind. I mean, he seems to like to change his mind on random things and then pretend that he believed the right thing all along. Maybe that will happen, but that is a best case scenario at this point. The best case scenario is that he's lying right now.
1: So to that point, there were a few like strange exchanges back and forth. Because they had so much opportunity to talk directly to and about each other. They were making like very targeted claims a number of times. And there were a few there were a few places that were just like just very weird. So at one point, like Biden um, accused Bernie of actually having super PACs. Bernie was like, Hey, well, you know, you, you stand for, you stood for public funding of elections, but here you are with all these PACs. What's that about? And um, Biden came back and says, well, yeah, well you've got nine super PACs. So, you know, what about you hypocrite? (laughs) (laughs) And at first I was like, Whoa, is that true? Not like soup. That's a big problem, because like that's a pretty that would be a really big issue if all the all along like Bernie was the anti-corruption and you know, anti, you know big donors candidate, and then all of a sudden he's got these super PACs, that would be an issue. But the thing is, that's not true. The
0: super PACs that uh, Joe Biden was accusing Bernie Sanders of having, um, he was referring to uh, several. Activist groups that are currently uh, that have currently endorsed Bernie Sanders, uh, the Center for Popular Democracy Action, the Democratic Socialists of America, the Dream Defenders, the Make a Road, Our Revolution, People's Action, Student Action, Progressive Democrats of America and the Sunrise Movement. All of which are issue-based advocacy organizations that do support Bernie Sanders, that have endorsed Bernie Sanders, and um, have advocated for a lot of the issues that he advocates for, but they're not being supported by corporate donations. They are primarily funded through grassroots donations, and the reason why super PACs are so problematic is the fact that you have corporations and rich people that are able to funnel in as much money as they want to super PACs that specifically are created to support a candidate. In theory, they're not allowed to directly coordinate with the candidate, but they always do. And then after they have given all that money to those organizations, to the candidates, they can then turn around when the candidate has been elected to office and be like, Hey, You know, all that money that I gave you pay up, pass this policy that I want you to pass. Um, you know, pass this, uh, advocate for this bill or kill this bill that, um, I want you to kill because that makes me rich. That is not what these organizations do. These are grassroots funded organizations that are anti-corporate that have anti-corporate platforms Uh, to classify them as super PACs is not only intellectually dishonest, it is inaccurate. So, Michael, what, what are the classifications of the organizations that Biden accused of being super PACs?
1: Yeah, so the organizations that uh, support Bernie that uh, Nathan mentioned are all classified as 501 type organizations, specifically as 501c3s or 501c4s, which are classifications under the U.S. You know, uh, tax code. And a 501c3 is a nonprofit, charitable, religious, or educational organization. And they are not allowed to lobby or advocate in any significant way for um, a particular candidate uh, or even a particular law. Like, if you're going to take, so the big thing about 501c3s is that they are tax deductible for charitable giving. And so they have to segregate all the money that comes tax-deductible from any money that's spent on lobbying efforts. The other classification is a 501c4, which is a social welfare group. And they can engage in advocacy and lobbying. Um, And similar to a PAC, they are allowed to receive um, money from unions and businesses and things like that. but they are distinct because their primary function under the code is not um, just for electing a candidate or lobbying and advocacy. It, um, they also function as like, gr- as like welfare groups. And so super PACs are actually classified in a whole other section of the U.S. tax code as 527 organizations, which are primarily for the purpose of influencing, selecting, nominating, or electing um, individuals to office and creating lobbying efforts and funding lobbying. Yeah. So not
0: candidate-based, um, although they did endorse Bernie Sanders. They mm-hmm. did. They are backing Bernie Sanders. And they
1: Sanders. can take political action.
0: Yeah, they, they can do that. Um, so that was a dishonest criticism. Another part, and I'm going to be careful how I say this because I don't want anybody get, to get the wrong idea, but Biden had some Trump-level lying in this debate. I'm not saying that he's a Trump level liar.
1: Mm -hmm. No one is.
0: (laughs) Except Trump. Um, But he had some moments where he told some Trump level lies. There was the moment where Bernie Sanders called him out for having advocated for cutting social security on the Senate floor. And look, what Bernie Sanders was saying was just, okay, is it true that you have in the past advocated for cutting social security? and Joe Biden said, "No, I did not." So here's the quotation. He said this, he was he was on the Senate floor in 1997. He said, "Quote: When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid, I meant veterans benefits, I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice." I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. So, as Bernie said during the debate, Biden can say that he was wrong to argue that and apologize. He can defend what he said, but he cannot deny that he said it, and he did that. Mm -hmm. And he not only denied it once, he denied it twice,
1: and he denied it a third time. That was astounding to me, because we have seen his record on Social Security. It is it is an open secret. It is like, it Biden or uh, Bernie has been bringing it up for a while. Like, it is out there. Yeah. And he just pretended like it wasn't the case. And, and Bernie was so precise in his language. Like, I'm saying this particular set of things. He said specifically... Um, you were on the Senate floor
0: arguing for cuts to Social Security. He wasn't talking about voting. Mm-hmm. He was talking about... Cuts, arguing for cuts. Yeah. And and Biden's defense, Biden's defense was, oh, well, I defended Social Security. I defended the privatization of Social Security when I was debating Paul Ryan. Go back and watch that. That is true. He mm-hmm. did defend uh, Social Security against privatization. But we're not talking about privatization.
1: Yeah. We are talking about cuts. And in the 90s, he argued for cuts. And so the interesting second theme, aside from leveraging coronavirus as a way to expose the fundamental crisis in our economy and our healthcare system was that Bernie used his time to make the case that he is the consistent candidate, that, that America needs a leader who has been on the right side of votes, on the right side of history f- for a majority of their votes and a majority of their time in Senate. And that they, you know, he said specifically, like I'm happy Joe Biden has come around to this issue and that issue. I'm happy that he still he now supports gay marriage. I'm happy that he's supportive of a public option and all these things.
0: And and just recently, supportive of uh, tuition free college for people making a hundred and fifty uh, hundred and fifty thousand yeah. dollars or less. Which I actually I actually hadn't heard that yet uh, before I watched the debate, and I was I was very happy about that. I was like, exactly. yes, yeah, me great too. job,
1: Joe. Yeah, come over to that side. We, we welcome you in that argument. Yeah. <laughs> and Bernie's point was, okay, great. I've been saying these things for like 20 plus years. Like I have been the one that's been pushing this. And ultimately it showed, I think, a deeper strategy for Bernie, which was, it seemed like he was trying to corner Biden into committing to more progressive policies. Like he was... And it's clear that it worked in a number of cases. Like he was pushing Biden to be more progressive on a number of issues like free college. And like if ultimately the nomination goes to Biden, Bernie has done a really important and valuable thing in pushing the narrative in a much more progressive direction and pushing Joe Biden to be a much more progressive candidate.
0: So, yeah, this goes back to what I said last week, which is. The problem with Joe Biden is he is a follower. He's not a leader. He advocates for the right ideas once it becomes popular. He doesn't really push the envelope. Bernie Sanders has been pushing the envelope his whole political career. He doesn't care what the polls say. If he sees a poll he doesn't like, he says, all right, I'm going to change that. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to argue for my position and I'm going to change that. That is not Joe Biden. The last thing that I want to talk about in the debate before we move on is the moment where they had the exchange about Bernie Sanders' comments about Cuba. Mm. So during the debate, it was brought up that Bernie Sanders had praised the literacy programs in Cuba. Now, he just stated a fact. The fact of the matter is, Cuba did incorporate literacy programs that worked. He was praising the policy. And in the same sentence, when he, original, when he made the original statement, he condemned authoritarianism. And this is something that was then, I was actually very, uh, uh, very happy that uh, Dana Bash pointed out to Biden mm-hmm. that Obama had said the exact same thing several years ago and then Biden did this weird weaselly like move of like oh but we were we were trying to have a good relation with Cuba at the time so that's why he said it i don't see i don't see why that means that when now bernie who's said it, it was up wrong. To dictators. like <laughs> yeah no i don't see why that makes what bernie said wrong and and then he he then he kind of turned it around he was like oh yeah yeah so Obama, when he was saying it, he was just talking about the policy, but, you know, Bernie's going around praising dictators. It's like, no, he's not praising dictators. He's praising individual policies, in that case, one that your your guy, the guy that you can't go 10 seconds without reminding us that you were his vice president, that he also praised. And then, like, Bernie Sanders pointed out, oh, well, um... Uh, we believe that China is a dictatorship as well, but, uh, there are things that we can objectively say are good about them, which Joe Biden did the exact same thing where he's like, Oh, well, you're saying that China's great. It's like, no, that's, he compared it to saying something good about Jack the Ripper. Again, you need to apply that same logic to what Obama said. Was he also like, was him praising Cuba's literacy programs also akin to praising Jack the Ripper? and 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 look one of the big arguments that has come from this is well but because bernie sanders said those things when you put him on a stage against donald trump he is definitely going to point that out but bernie has the easiest counter argument on the in the history of counter arguments which is the fact that donald trump has repeatedly praised vladimir putin bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, Duterte in uh, in the Philippines, he literally said that he fell in love with Kim Jong-un. Bernie Sanders was just talking about individual policies. He wasn't praising the authoritarianism or the authoritarians, he was just saying this was a good policy. What Donald Trump said was actually praising the authoritarians themselves. It is the easiest thing to rebut in the history of arguments. I don't see that as standing in his way if Bernie plays it smart. And to criticize him from the point of view of a Democrat who worked with Barack Obama, who praised the exact same program, is dishonest, disingenuous. This should not have been a section in the debate, and I'm disappointed in Biden for it.
1: so now time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good? Well, we do Tips for Good because we want to
0: give people easy tools, easy ideas, and easy information that you can use to hopefully make yourself a better person and to ideally make the world a better place. So, Michael,
1: what is this week's tip for good? This week our tip is, you're not the only one who matters when it comes to the coronavirus. Let's just say a little bit more about that. We all have a role to play here. I've heard so many young people, and myself included in the early part of this, say, well, I'm expecting to get it. I'm not really worried about myself, which makes total sense. It's making less and less sense over time, because as we're getting some information, younger people are at more risk than we at first believed. But, you know, for the most part, the uh, mortality rate among young people like you or me or people in good health is
0: quite low. If you are a young person listening to the podcast. Uh, I I, I know that there are some people that are a little bit older that listen to the podcast, but most of our audience, I believe, is relatively young.
1: Yeah, big surprise. (laughs) Um, And so for a lot of you, you may be thinking like, well, you know, It's not going to really affect me that much. I'm going to get a cold. No big deal. I'm going to go about my life, you know, as I would any other day. But that's really a bad idea because in doing that, you're putting a lot of other people at risk. People that are older, people with compromising health conditions like, you know, heart disease or a respiratory illness or diabetes are all at increased risk because of this. And so, in not spreading the disease, you are doing your part to help save those people's lives. So let's put this into perspective. The super important part of your role is to help flatten the curve. Now, you've probably heard this phrase. Basically, it's the, it's the idea. During the pe- peak of an epidemic or a pandemic, there are too many people with the disease uh, for the capacity of the, med- of the healthcare system. And so the healthcare system can't provide adequate care to everyone. And this is what's happening in Northern Italy right now. Unable to provide adequate care to everyone who needs it, they're having to make triage decisions about who should get care and who should not, and ultimately, people are dying. And so, we have like you have information out there that between four point five and up to seven point five million people will likely need hospitalization from this virus, but the United States only has around a million. Beds, and that's not a—that's uh, not accounting for people that are uh, beds that are already occupied, and so we need to spread this thing out. Say it requires a week in the hospital for you to be able to leave. Well, we need to spread out the peak for between four to eight weeks. So that's really important in order for everybody to get treatment. Let's take a minute to talk about exponential growth because that's what we're talking about here, right? A lot of people have said things like, well, it's only a few thousand cases. It's only a few thousand deaths. Like, it's not really that big of a deal. I should be able to go out and do whatever I want. I should just go about my business as usual. But the problem is when you do that, you're potentially infecting maybe two or up to three other people if you're infected. And that keeps happening. And so if I were to give you one penny today, just to illustrate this point, one penny today, and then double the amount of money you have every day it would only take you 28 days to get to a million dollars. But on day 20, just eight days earlier, you'd only have $5,000, because that's exponential growth. So by the time you recognize it, by the time you see it around you, it's way, way too late. And so you have to act now, you have to act swiftly, you have to follow what the CDC is saying, because it's not just about you, and a lot of people could die if we don't all do our part.
0: And that's tips for good. So, our next segment is going to be basically our final argument for why it is a bad idea to nominate Joe Biden. Now, I do want to recognize a few things before I start this. And that is mathematically, I don't see any path to the nomination for Bernie Sanders. I don't think he's going to be the nominee. I think it is almost certain to be Joe Biden. And the reason why this is likely going to be the last argument is that I'm fairly certain that after Tuesday, which uh, this pod has probably just uh, gone up as the results are coming in from Tuesday, but we record on Monday, it is likely going to be even more over than it already is. And... If that is the case, then Michael and me are probably going to be changing our tune to be a lot more positive towards Joe Biden. Because ultimately, we do believe that beating Trump is extremely important, is the most important thing right now. But there are a few things that I want to say as kind of a last-ditch effort That at this point, I'm pretty sure it's too late. And also one final warning. So I remember in the 2016 election, when I would have arguments with Hillary Clinton supporters, because I was a Bernie supporter back then as well. And I would have arguments with Hillary Clinton supporters who would tell me, well, you can't vote for Bernie Sanders. I understand that you agree with him on more issues. I agree with him on more issues too, but you can't vote for him. You got to vote for Hillary Clinton because she's the only one that can beat Trump at this. At that point, it was pretty clear that Trump was going to be the nominee, but they were saying Bernie Sanders could not possibly beat Donald Trump. um, But Hillary Clinton is definitely going to beat Donald Trump. She's the safe choice. So you got to vote for her. And I remember saying, well, I'm looking at the polling data that shows them actually fairly close. And also I'm looking at the writing on the wall. This is an anti-establishment year. And, People perceived Hillary Clinton to be part of the establishment and Donald Trump to not be part of the establishment. A lot of people who had been suffering from wages remaining stagnant for the last, like, two decades saw Donald Trump as a way to shake up the system because nothing had happened for them. We got out of the Great Recession, and that was you know that was better for them, but it did not change their economic circumstance. I saw the writing on that wall, and I told a lot of people... I do not think that Hillary Clinton is the most electable. I think that she has the best chance of losing to Donald Trump. Now, I did think she would win, and I was wrong about that, but I thought that if anyone was going to lose, it was going to be her. And then she did lose. And I remember talking to Hillary Clinton supporters back then where I was basically like, look, I, I'm not trying to rub it in your face or anything, but I did try to warn you. We shouldn't make the same mistake last time. And instead of acknowledging that, they turned around at me and were like, no, it was Bernie supporters that did this. Bernie supporters are the reason why she lost. Mm-hmm. Six to 12% of Bernie supporters voted for Donald Trump. But let's compare that to 2008 with Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. 24 to 25% of Hillary Clinton supporters voted for John McCain in 2008. Bernie did a better job of rallying his supporters in 2016 than Hillary Clinton did in 2008. And I remember being blamed for that and just thinking this is going to get Donald Trump reelected because no one is learning the lessons. And I'm seeing the same thing happen right now with Joe Biden. That doesn't mean that I think that Joe Biden's definitely going to lose. In fact, I think considering how Trump has been handling the coronavirus, how the economy seems to be in shambles right now, and looking at polling data right now as well, I think that Joe Biden is more likely to beat Donald Trump than to not beat Donald Trump. But I do not think that he is the safe choice. Partially, it's because once again, he represents the establishment and people do not want the establishment. And number two, and I... I do not say this to concern Troll. He is not the sharp person that he used to be. He has not had the cognitive ability that he had even four years ago.
1: No, he showed up really well in the debate the other night. I I don't
0: think he did. I mean, he didn't trip over himself the entire time, but he was still doing that. He still was not sounding sharp. Like he has not sounded sharp this entire campaign. And I feel like we've lowered the bar so much for him that we are willing to look past it. But again, go back and watch the debate between him and Paul Ryan Mm in 2012. And you will see what I mean. He is sharp. He is on point. He's a brilliant debater and he is not that person anymore. And I'm concerned about his cognitive decline. And I do not say that to concern troll because I genuinely think that, do- that Joe Biden is going to be the candidate and I genuinely want him to beat Donald Trump, but I don't think he's the safe choice because I think if this continues, you put him on a debate stage with Donald Trump and Donald Trump's going to run in circles around him and his polling might go down after that. And I don't want that to happen. I do not want Trump to get reelected. Mark my words now. If we nominate Joe Biden, I'm not going to say we're definitely going to lose, but we're much more likely to lose. And I think that the election, even if Joe Biden does win, it's going to be close. Now, that being said, if it ends up not being close, if he ends up beating Donald Trump in a landslide, I will gladly, happily, celebratingly, Come on this podcast and say that I was wrong, but I don't think I am.
1: So, with all that said, you know you'll hear this podcast soon after the next primary. So we don't we don't know about those delegates yet. But at this point, um, uh, Biden is sitting at eight hundred ninety four delegates. Bernie's sitting at seven hundred forty three. Uh, to fully win a majority, each or either of them needs to get one thousand nine hundred ninety one delegates. Um, So currently about 45% of all delegates have been cast. Um, So there's still a number of primary races um, to happen. But, you know, to Nathan's point, like the path to the nomination for Bernie is looking slimmer and slimmer. Um, And, you know, with the states that are left and with the momentum that Biden's getting, uh, it's unlikely that the nominee will be Bernie. So I'm sure some of you are rejoicing. I'm sure some of you are sad uh, like we are. Either way, you know, to Nathan's point earlier, we have a lot of work to do left. Right. Like if Biden's the nominee, we need to be out there working to be Trump
0: all the time. But at the same time, if he's the nominee and he becomes president. That our job is definitely not over. Mm-hmm. Because earlier in the podcast, we talked about how Joe Biden is a follower he's not a leader he goes with the trends he goes with the polls which means we need to be a part of changing those polls of making the majority support for uh medicare for all and there is a majority support for medicare for all make that even more decisive and force him to pick it up because that's the only way that you're going to get joe biden to make real change he's not going to fight for it you got to force him to now he is somebody that is persuadable you know you're never going to get that under donald trump and that's why it is important to in my opinion it is still important to vote for joe biden if he is the nominee but if he is he's not going to be an activist so we have to do that (music)
1: And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Ass Hat of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan, who's our ass hat this week? Well, our ass hat this week is televangelist Jim Baker. Whoa, we finally have a, a televangelist. What is it with us and religious people?
0: <laughs> this is probably not a great trend. Yeah, uh, there are plenty. Look, look.
1: To be fair, they're shams. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, in the wise words of Donald Trump, some of them, I assume, are good people
1: <laughs> you might be our asset next week
0: <laughs> but jim baker is not one of those good people no um, certainly not no. so what did he do so he has a broadcast show it's called the jim baker show um a very uh, delineative naming right there um and he decided to try to capitalize on the coronavirus
1: oh good virus profiteering
0: yeah exactly and he did it by trying to sell this silver solution which is basically just like silver (laughs) and he claims that if you drink it it is just going to cure your coronavirus he had this uh naturopathic doctor on his program um who basically Uh, Her argument was this. He asked her, so are you saying that this could be effective? And she said, quote, well, let's say it hasn't been tested on this strand of coronavirus, but it has the ability to kill every pathogen that has ever been tested on, including SARS and HIV. So that naturopathic doctor um, is, I, I think we should give her an honorable mention as an asshat as well.
1: Or a Nobel Prize if she's right. If she cured HIV, I'm willing to give her the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> but she didn't.
0: There's no scientific basis for this. And this, uh, this four-ounce bottle of silver, which, by the way, might actually be harmful to drink, harmful for your health, is $80. He is selling this BS cure- For $80. And the problem is there are people that listen to his show that believe him and will spend $80 on something that could be harmful to them Mm -hmm. and think that it's actually going to cure their coronavirus if they get it.
1: And if you're wondering why like a TV preacher is out there trying to hawk cures to coronavirus that are fake, the answer is simple same reason he's on tv to begin with to make tons and tons of money yeah but he got caught this time because the state of missouri is suing him
0: (laughs) so there's a there's
1: a hero in this
0: story and it's the state of missouri (laughs) which don't say that very often yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah jim baker is just a disgusting terrible human being this is not the first time that he's tried to pull something like this but as disgusting as he is, we do have to congratulate him for being our Asshat of the Week. All right. And for our final segment, we are going to get very positive mm. and very upbeat and uplifting.
1: Our government has done the right thing and fixed the coronavirus. Oh, crap. Missouri's going to sue me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no I we're going to talk about COVID-19 and things aren't going well right no. now in the government again we're going to focus on the political angle uh, we talked a little bit about some of the uh, background of COVID-19 um, we're going to try to get uh, my father who is a professor of anatomy and physiology on the podcast at some point to talk about some of the science behind COVID-19 Um but uh, for this week, we're going to focus on uh, the politics of it. Yeah. So let's get started by talking about Trump's Oval Office speech addressing the coronavirus outbreak and how it caused more confusion than it alleviated. It. Hey, um, at <laughs> least
1: he declared a state of emergency.
0: That happened later, though.
1: Oh well it's a, it's a good thing it's a good thing so you happy know, to have it
0: credit where credit is due exactly you, yes
1: good job boy yeah you, you finally s- did it sign that <laughs> <laughs> yeah but like again the problem is he can't string two consecutive coherent words together and so it's really confusing when he tries to describe relatively complex things yeah so in this overall office address
0: and by the way this was pre-written he was reading off of a teleprompter so you would think that if you're reading off a teleprompter, you're probably going to get your uh, facts correct. Yeah, and, not if your
1: staff is a bunch of
0: dummies. Yeah, apparently uh, Stephen Miller wrote this for him, <laughs> which is probably why they uh, referred to it as a foreign virus. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just a, a few a few things to point out in this. During this, uh, this Oval Office address, he claimed that he had been in talk with insurance companies who had agreed to waive all fees for testing and treatments for coronavirus, yay! That's great, and yeah, and, and wow, I will say an accomplishment. I will say when I first saw that, I honestly said, "Wait, really? He did that? That is amazing!" Yeah, if Holy only that were true. I am so looking forward to getting on my podcast and giving Trump credit for this. Mm-hmm and then right after the address like insurance companies just descended upon it and were like what no we didn't do that are you kidding do something that's actually decent you think we would do that no <laughs> that's not so, a direct quote no that's that's not direct um no no what the truth is what I, what it actually was was that they agreed to waive it for testing but not for treatments
1: Yeah, but, you know, that's like, if that's the only mistake he made in the whole speech, that's probably his most accurate speech ever. Except he messed up a bunch of other stuff, too. Like he had travelers and scrambling the other day because he said that he was halting all travel from Europe. After, you know, people in Europe uh, had bought flights to come to the United States and after people in the United States had canceled their flights, like a huge, huge downstream impact of this Uh, really confusing statement. And it turns out he didn't actually mean all European travel. Um, He just meant uh, travel of European people to the United States. And even then only from the Shenzhen region or Shenzhen zone. So not all Europeans and uh, all American citizens were able to come back from the United States. So just a ton of confusion. But again, you know, like maybe that was the only other thing that he got wrong. Maybe. He
0: also said during the the address, quote, This is not a financial crisis. This is just a temporary moment of time that we will overcome together as a nation and as a world. Wow. So it's a good thing it wasn't a financial crisis. It's a good thing that the next day, U.S. stocks didn't get sold off sharply for the second
1: straight day. Mm Mm-hmm yeah and and like I don't know about you guys, my 401k portfolio has declined twenty five percent year to date. If that's not an economic like <laughs> problem, I do not know what is yeah um we're talk- like there is no question that we are at the, in the midst of an economic shock, potentially at the beginning of an economic recession,
0: yeah or at
1: least the economic slowdown. the Fed does not lower interest rates in an em- in an emergency reduction twice. If it's not an emergency,
0: right after Trump's speech, the Dow dropped another one thousand points. So, uh, <laughs> so definitely not a financial. Yeah, crisis. that was
1: the markets assess like adjusting for having an absolute buffoon in charge of the company, <laughs> country, <laughs> company. Whoops. That's a Freudian slip.
0: <laughs>
1: My head it's is always he, in the press. What sector. he treats it. Yeah, yeah, but this is not the first time, as you guys know, that we have seen and heard really misleading statements coming out of the white house his administration has repeatedly talked about um made false claims about tests being available to anybody who wants it which they're not they're there's relatively limited availability only when doctors prescribe them and um, and often you can't get a test unless you have you know and can demonstrate that you've been in direct contact with someone that has the virus so his whole his whole message the other night was just to relax we're all going to be great. We're all going to be so good. But right afterwards, experts in his government said that, like, that is so clearly not obviously the case.
0: Yeah. So we've talked about how the United States economy is a history of boom, bust cycles. When you have periods of uncontrollable growth, which, you know, uh, Michael has said in the past that, um, that ideally you should have, controlled but constant growth of the economy and with uncontrollable growth that everybody keeps saying is so great within the trump economy we've been warning you and experts have been warning that that means that we are leading towards another economic disaster because we cannot control our economy Mm -hmm. and this could be the start of that
1: economic disaster coronavirus could be the needle that makes the bubble pop. (laughs) Honestly, like historically, you end up in a phase of extreme economic growth. You often it uh, looks like a bubble of one kind or another. And then some issue kicks off a set of precipitous actions which lead to an overall economic decline. That's just how the cycle works in a macro way. And it is very possible. It's hard to know that you're in a recession until you're in it, or sometimes even out of it. You know, the, you don't have contemporaneous measures. Um, and the definition of a recession is often about the the economic impact. And so it's hard to tell that you're in it until you are. But it is entirely possible that the economic impact of COVID-19 has kicked off, Um, a market correction and the combination of the overinflated economy on the demand side because of overly available credit um, could be potentially leading to a contraction. And that's something that we should all be really acutely aware of. um, And, you know, certainly be taking actions to protect ourselves, especially if you are in a position of economic vulnerability if you are have uh, an unsure source of income, you know maybe I'm not exactly a canary in the coal mine, maybe more like the coal miner that's passing out. but <laughs> you know like do your best to shore up your sources of income, do your best to take your non-liquid assets um, and either get them in something secure or you know, if you have something close to cash, like keep cash around. Now what you don't want to do, and let me make this really clear, prefacing it by saying that I am not a financial advisor or a fiduciary, mm-hmm. <laughs> is you do not want to go and sell a bunch of stocks, obviously. The market has collapsed significantly, and a lot of people are saying, oh, well, I've lost you know this many percent. I said it earlier. Well, you haven't lost it unless you sell it or unless the companies go bankrupt. And if you are in a diversified portfolio, it's likely that, You know, you may have one or two or three of the companies go bankrupt, but you probably have 25 to 30 to 40 of them in there. And so it's just not going to have that huge of an impact on your overall portfolio. You may have even hundreds of them in there. And so what you want to do in your financial positions is sit tight um, where it makes sense, because ultimately all those stocks are assets, right? And so if you hold the assets and don't get them and don't liquidate them, you don't realize the losses, now, that being said, if you have liquid cash and a really secure source of income, you might want to buy assets. They're really cheap right now. <laughs> um, but more importantly, um, let's talk about what's happening in the economy at large rather than just your personal finance. The Fed, as I mentioned, lowered interest rates again to between 0.25% and 0%. So we're getting you know, right around that 0% interest, which means that banks are able to you know, borrow to close to nothing. At the same time, the Fed announced that it would offer financial firms up to $1.5 trillion in short-term collateralized loans. Now, let's let's be clear. This is not the Fed giving away $1.5 trillion.
0: Which a lot of uh, people in progressive media have basically uh, and falsely uh, said.
1: Yeah, this is, yeah, we, we are not totally blowing up our budget to bail out big banks it's just not what's happening right now what they have done is offered banks 1.5 billion or trillion dollars in loans which they will be required to pay back now now they're offering them at near zero interest rates so the federal government is not making money off of this money off of this cash that it's providing but what the point the reason they're doing it is to provide liquidity to the banks in order for them to continue to make um their to continue to place their positions. And so, you know, it is not a handout, but also importantly, it's not going to do much. Yeah. And that's the big and that's the big takeaway for me here. Like we did an episode or a, seg- a segment on the Fed towards the beginning of the podcast and I encourage you to go back to listen to it because we talked about a lot of these issues back then. But I'll just rehash a couple of them. One is that monetary policy is fundamentally a demand side action, demand side set of levers. and that's what the Fed is that's what the Fed, that's what the Fed controls. By lowering interest rates, they're lowering the cost of credit, they're increasing the cash flow into the economy so that people are encouraged to spend at lower rates, businesses are encouraged to invest and things like that. That's all well and good under a normal economic contraction of some kind, which is driven by the demand side often. In this case, however, it's not primarily a demand-side uh, contraction or correction. In this case, we have global supply lines that are disrupted. China is producing less and sending less. Italy is producing less and sending less. All over the world, like producers are creating less goods to be provided. And so this is a supply-side issue. And so, if there's no money to spend the things on, if there's no increase in products to spend money, um, then all you're doing is funnel, all you're doing is infusing the economy with money and increasing inflation. And so, what you're doing by lowering interest rates is just giving away more money for that people don't know how to spend. Now, you might say, okay, well, by lowering interest rates, aren't we lowering the cost for individuals like you and me to borrow? Isn't that good? Yes, that is good. The fact that the Fed has gone from a 1.5% interest rate to a 0.0% interest rate, you know, is about a 1.5% reduction, obviously. So that's great except you got to think about how we're borrowing. You and I right now are probably not going out and buying a house where a 1.5% change makes a big difference. Now we might go buy a car where a 1.5% change is nice, but a lot of people to get by day to day are going to be using their credit card. Well, their credit cards have between, you know, a 15 to 30% interest rate. So you chop 1.5% off that, and they're not really gonna notice. Ultimately, ultimately, this is not a solution for the everyday consumer. It's a solution to jumpstart the economy. Now, monetary policy can help jumpstart the economy in the long run, as, as even on the supply side, right? Like as it becomes less expensive to borrow, businesses can go out and invest in facilities, but that's a long-term Solution it is not one that can short-term fix the economy, especially when we're telling people Don't go out and spend money The Fed is literally trying to infuse the economy with money that people cannot and will not Spend in the near future. It's just not going to make a difference and also Even even if we are assuming that they're gonna pay it back right now This is blowing a hole in the deficit, right? So the fact that we lower the interest rates is hurting the deficit, right? Because the Fed and the federal government gets money from interest from the banks, and then that becomes part of the revenue side of the budget.
0: Well, I was talking about the the one
1: point five trillion dollars. Ultimately, that's not going to make that much difference okay. because so it's not. It's just hurt like much cash or it's not money. Yeah, it's just that it's like cash that they're giving and
0: we'll get back. So does that mean that there's not really much to the argument that a lot of progressives are making that, like, um, for example, to cancel student debt, that would be $1.7 trillion. You could have just used this money for that. So there's no, really nothing to that argument? There
1: is nothing to that argument. Because what you would—the this this what this, the more analogous thing would be, okay, well, to cancel student debt, all you have to do is take $1.5 trillion in loans, and then what? give it to the students as loans because that's what this is
0: yeah that makes sense
1: yeah it'd be a substituting one kind of loan for another now it might be nice to give student loans a reduction in interest rates yeah that would and, be, definitely and to be a good clear thing.
0: uh i am definitely for student loan forgiveness i think that michael is as well mm-hmm. are you I, well as a holder of some i would like that <laughs> <laughs> so uh so that that's not to say that we don't think that it's uh, that it's not worth it to do student student loan forgiveness but it is important to to point out the fact that it it's not like they just threw away 1.5 trillion dollars that could have been spent like, anywhere Mm -hmm. it's it is alone ultimately uh yeah that's
1: an that's an overly simplistic argument and one that's honestly not fair to the fed that is trying to do their best but ultimately their hands are tied because their levers are almost exclusively demand side so one important point to make to uh, kind
0: of wrap everything together is as it stands this is the problem with having a completely incompetent buffoon in the White House. Because first off, you have him misinforming people about the the response to the coronavirus, and then you have just idiotic solutions that are ultimately designed to, at best, provide very temporary relief, and at worst, just do nothing at all. So it is it is very concerning that right now, um we're heading towards an iceberg, the captain is drunk off his ass, and nobody knows how to sail a ship.
1: All right, so now this has been a, another downer of an episode. So, Nathan, <laughs> what's your highlight this week?
0: So, Michael, my highlight is the fact that the listenership on this podcast has actually been going up pretty steadily. In fact, in just the last Um, three podcasts, our listenership has increased by 66%. That's super exciting. So if you're new to the podcast, thank you so much for listening. Um, I mean, this podcast is really, uh, this week has been kind of crappy, but this podcast has really been my highlight. It feels so nice to be able to come onto here and discuss important issues that affect the entire nation, uh, with one of my best friends, and to know that there are people that are listening, there are people that um, maybe feel more informed by what we talk about, that feel uh, legitimized by what we talk about, and that really does mean a lot to me. So thank you so much for listening. Even if you don't agree with everything we say, and you know I, I'm sure that many of you disagree with a lot of what we say, um, thank you, and uh, please continue listening.
1: My highlight is that, um, while I was working at home alone last week, this week, Brie has uh, been told that she's supposed to work from home too. So we get to have lunch and we get to take kiss breaks and <laughs> it's, uh, it's way better to work from home with a partner because now I'm not so lonely throughout the day. <laughs> so yeah, that's my highlight. Yep. All right.
0: Well, thank you all so much for listening and, uh, have a great week. Stay healthy.